When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That cold case you're listening to? Nasty stuff. But you know what else is a crime? Missing even a moment of whatever you're doing to go on a drink run. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. I never thought about space in my cramped apartment, but in this house, all I see is empty space. The sofa and ottoman look like tiny islands in a sea of hardwood floors. I could get two ottomans in the living room, but then I'd need another sofa. I could tell people I'm into minimalism. Anyway, when you save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto, that's the easy part of adjusting to the suburbs. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 134 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. And before we get to this week's guest, Luke Spiller from The Struts, now that Christmas and Hanukkah are over, if you find yourself with a little extra gift money or you didn't get what you were expecting under the tree, head to the online shop at mistresscarrie.com. The store is still stocked with hoodies and beanies for the cold weather, tank tops and t-shirts if you're headed someplace warm this winter, and all kinds of stuff to outfit your bar, including a 7-in-1 bartender tool, a new set of coasters, shot glasses, pint glasses, and so much more. And if you're planning on attending a concert or sporting event soon, get yourself the clear plastic Mistress Carrie concert-approved bag. You can wear it around your waist or crossbody and take in those essentials in a bag that meets all of the baggage guidelines. Log on to mistresscarry.com and head to the shop. My guest this week, Luke Spiller, is the lead singer of The Struts. I met Luke and the guys in late 2015 or early 2016 at their first show in the Boston area at Sinclair in Harvard Square. And I was told back then, go and see this band now because they're going to be huge. I think there might have been 50 people in the club that night. And earlier this year, Luke Spiller joined Queen on stage at Wembley in tribute to Taylor Hawkins from the Foo Fighters. Luke checked in on the show to talk about that performance and also to talk about the band's history, songwriting, the holidays. The differences between living in Los Angeles versus England and the difference between the history of American rock and roll versus the history of rock and roll in the UK. We also talked about his upbringing and the band's upcoming plans for 2023. And if you're headed to Vegas on New Year's, make sure you go and see the Struts with Bush at the Fremont Street Experience. For some people, the Struts are a new band, even though they've been around for a decade. And if you've never seen them live, you truly can't understand the band until you do. I was super excited to find out that Luke was going to be my last guest of 2022. So allow me to introduce you to Luke Spiller from The Struts.
Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Food Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the Band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to. You have the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Luke, hello. Hello, hello, hello. You're a very tough man to get a hold of. You're very busy this time of year. Uh, I am. Anyone would think that, you know, I'm working for Santa or something. <laughs> Uh, whenever I talk to an artist, the first thing I always ask them is where they are. Because most of the time, um, you guys don't even know. Do you know where you are right now? I do. I'm, I'm actually at my place in L.A. at the moment. The adjustment from England to L.A., as far as a residence goes, that must have been interesting. A downshift. Or maybe an upshift, I guess. I don't know. Um, I'd say, well, define, define upshift. Uh, pace of life a little crazier maybe oh yeah completely like um what i well i guess in a sense like what i'm kind of used to or where i was before um yeah couldn't be further from sort of like the lifestyle of la i um i actually still uh live uh, and have like a place in uh, in the uk um, close to like where I grew up and yeah it's kind of like very small seaside town <laughs> quite sleepy um, a lot of great pubs but like nothing's really happening and then of course like you get to LA and there's literally something quite monumental going on almost every other day so yeah it's very different but I like I like the sort of going between the two if that makes sense um, you're going to finish off the year doing something insane. You're going to be playing the Fremont Street Experience in Vegas, which for anyone that's ever gone and seen a show there or just walked around, especially later on at night, that is a spectacle. Have you been there before? Do you know what you're getting into? I have not. I haven't. Um, what am I getting myself into? It's an absolute freak show. In all how, the best and worst ways possible. I mean, I do like a good freak show. <laughs> and I can't imagine what it's going to be like on New Year's Eve, and you guys are going to be there with Bush. It's just going to be bedlam. I think it's going to be a good fun. Good fun. Indeed. Are you going? I, I uh, As of right now, no. But as I'm talking to you, I'm kind of convincing myself that it probably wouldn't be a bad idea. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um it's always fun doing stuff on New Year's. We, we seem to have some pretty epic New Year's things that we've done in the past, like when we 
um, opened up for Motley Crue. That was a good New Year's Eve, um, celebrating with Tommy Lee and all that after the show. So You survived um, it. Congratulations. I did, just about, yeah. But <laughs> this should be fun. Um, speaking of Bush, I asked Gavin Rossdale this question a while back, and I thought his answer was hilarious. I'm going to ask you the same thing. Uh, I have my ways and GPS on my phone set to a British accent because I just feel like it's nicer when it's telling me where to go. And I asked Gavin Rossdale, does the same thing work in reverse? Do you have it set to an American accent? And he actually said yes and couldn't give me a reason why. Do you, with all living in LA, you're probably doing a lot of driving now. Do you have your GPS set to an American accent or a British accent? Uh, in, well, I actually have it set to a, a British woman. So, Ooh. yeah, I tend to listen to women a lot more. <laughs> I, I had to go back and look at the first time that I met you guys. And I believe it was your first tour in the U.S. I met you in Boston. I think it was like late 2015 or early 2016. You played this great club um, in Harvard Square, the Sinclair. And your record label had said to me, you need to go and watch these guys because you're going to want to be able to say that you saw them in a small club because this band is going to be huge. And so I got to go and see you guys and I spent some time with you after the show just kind of talking about your aspirations and kind of what the band was hoping was going to happen in the future. And everything that we talked about that night has already happened with the band. So congratulations. I mean, what year was that again? It's like 2015 or 2016. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Um, I mean, well, thank you, firstly. Um but I imagine, yeah, there's still plenty more on the to-do list for sure. Uh, was taking the stage at Wembley a bucket list thing for you? Because when I saw you on that stage at the Taylor Hawkins tribute, I was just like, for someone that grew up there, that iconic venue, obviously the reason behind the show is something nobody wanted. But the fact that you were part of that amazing show have you come down from the high of that yet? I really haven't, to be honest. Um, it's been like a, a giant whirlwind. And, um, you know, I mean, yes, I mean, the circumstances were obviously devastating. Emotions were really kind of up and down. Um, but such an incredible, incredible thing to be a part of. Um, but, you know, on a lighter note, I mean, yeah, you're, you're correct. I mean, talk about an opportunity. I mean, not only to be able to front Queen <laughs> was something incredible and being surrounded by such amazing people all night. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was, I have to say, I was, I don't really get nervous, but given the clientele and the people that were there and what was expected, I, I, I did have to, loosen myself up quite a bit before getting on stage which is not really usually something i do <laughs> so um yeah some tequila was drank before for sure. <laughs> especially on that stage when you're talking about taking the stage with queen arguably the best 20 minutes of rock ever happened on that stage when freddie mercury took the stage with the band at live aid i mean if you're talking about best rock performances ever if it's not number one, I don't know what is. 
no i mean yeah it, it was just it was just such a surreal moment and one of the most it's kind of hard to describe because it was such a bittersweet moment you know um but when i you know when i look back on it i know taylor would have been so thrilled um for me to have an opportunity like that and that's one of the biggest things that i kind of you know i have to kind of take away from it in order to sort of appreciate it if that makes any sense um but yeah i mean gosh like the, i remember 15 minutes before going on stage that um i i heard that brian wanted to see me in his dressing room and brian may um, by the way i want just <laughs> yeah, yeah. You yeah. can Sorry, refer Brian, to no. him as Brian, but for all of us peasants, that's Doctor Brian May. Yeah, and he wanted to to do the walk um, from the dressing room to the stage with me, and of course with Roger and everyone else that was there, and that was just incredible. Especially like growing up and seeing all of that footage um, of you know queen like walking from their dressing room to like the stage and it was it was just incredible and then to, to get up on stage at sort of like i think it was about 8 p.m at night or so um to a stadium filled with people ready to see and ready to be sort of like rocked <laughs> for a cornier phrase um it was just great. And, and I really took that opportunity like by the balls and I just, just did the best I absolutely could. You know, I only had a chance to meet Taylor Hawkins once and it was during an interview here in Boston and he couldn't have been nicer. I interviewed Edgar Winter recently who talked about Taylor performing on his new album, Brother Johnny, and just talked about how enthusiastic he was about music and just what a genuinely lovely person he was. Um, what were were your interactions like with Taylor, if you don't mind sharing? No, of course. Um, they were always, always amazing. Um, I think, you know, I've said this before in various sort of interviews and stuff, but I'm happy to sort of say it again that I think the the sheer sort of volume of, love and appreciation that that was spread everywhere like across social media was just a a true testament to his character and like how amazing he was to other people and and he was always like a true gent and like you said he was just a he was just a massive fan of music and 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 really charming and yeah he, he always came across at times a little bit self-deprecating and, you know, which kind of really disarms you when you meet someone um, of his caliber, if that makes any sense. But I, I was lucky enough to have some great times with him on and off the stage. And um, yeah, they're just, they're memories that, you know, I really hold dear. And, you know, I just sort of, yeah, like when I think about it, I get, you know, kind of sad about it. But like I said, 
I just felt so lucky to have the opportunity to honor his memory. Um, and I, I, you know, I was, and, and to be fair, like even when I was at Wembley, I was kind of like looking around and <laughs> meeting everyone else that, that was there. And when I looked at everybody, I was kind of like, wow, like I had a bit of like kind of imposter syndrome at one point. I was like, look at all these people, you know, you, there's like, you got like members of ACDC and the police and Metallica, Paul McCartney. All these people had such amazing, huge um, careers, you know, and, and, and in the grand scheme of things, I was, I was sort of, you know, the struts and myself at times can still be perceived as sort of like a up and coming act. And, um, you know, I, I did express that to a few people and they, you know, they turned around and said, well, that's because, you know, Taylor loved you, you know, and he believed in you and um, that's why you're here. And uh, that's what I, you know, sort of kept reminding myself, uh, you know, before and after and, and stuff. So I just, I just feel so lucky to have known him and, um, and yeah, and the, the world and the music world is, you know, really going to miss him and never stop missing him, you know? He seems like someone that just genuinely loved music, which for the rock community at large is something that we all have in common, is that we are those people that that just love music so much that you don't have to have anything else in common with someone you share that love for rock music and that makes you family. Yeah. I mean, you are right. It's at times, I think being in this industry, you, you do sort of encounter people that, um, you know, that they kind of get into it for reasons that are beyond music, whether it's sort of money and fame and, and things like this. And, um, Taylor was was not one of those. He he was all about the music. He he always had his eye on the ball and was always pushing himself to to be better and better. And um, you know, to be honest, like that, those kind of people are are kind of rare to find. I think in this day and age, more than ever, just in music in general. Um, you know, he he appreciated the the old school mentality of like having to, to work really hard to get to, you know, the heights that he did. And um, I think there's a lot of young people these days um, that have, you know, grown up in sort of like the overnight success. uh, Yeah. You go viral and you're famous like that. Yeah. I mean, more so than now than ever. I mean, when I was growing up, it was it was all X Factor and Pop Idol, and which completely kind of took over the charts and um, and uh, music in general. And um, I think it left sort of like a lot of people uh, wanting to get into that industry with like a level of expectation that um, you know this should happen by this time and this and this and this. But you know, Taylor understood and he respected uh artists and bands that you know did it 
the the real way you know getting into a, a van and traveling hours on end and driving through the night and doing things that you know myself and and the rest of my band the struts have done and even still continue to do um to this day um and uh yeah he was just he was just brilliant just brilliant and like you said just a real genuine fan of the music i mean we would <laughs> when we opened up for the foos for the best part of like on and off for like a year across america you know we were always we would sit um at catering and um and just talk, talk music it was always about music <laughs> you know um, i mean we we you know we would sort of like talk about other things and whatnot but i i even remember very vividly uh I was sat down with Taylor and, and Pat Smear, who's also probably one of the biggest Queen fans, along with myself and Taylor. And we're just sort of, you know, talking about everything Queen. And um, Dave Grohl comes and sits on our table and just, you know, he starts eating. And he looks up and he goes, you guys talking about Queen? And we were like, yeah. And he goes, oh, and he just picks up his tray and just walks off. <laughs> Um, when you look back at your musical journey, I mean, the struts have been around for 10 years as you're talking about driving in a van and building slowly. It's been a decade for you guys already. When you go back and look at your musical journey, even before the band, I have a theory about music that there's two kind of phases of your life. There's the music you're gifted that you're exposed to when you're young, the soundtrack of your childhood. Um, and then there's a day where you hear something in your adolescence and you step out and say, oh, wait, that's mine. That's what mm. I like. So can you talk to me about the soundtrack to your childhood versus whatever that band album song was where you stepped out on your own and said, okay, I like that? Yeah, I, I mean, I... I, my dad is, is like a singer songwriter, um, gospel, uh, kind of thing. And, you know, to be completely honest, I, I wasn't exposed to a huge amount of, of music other than, you know, my dad's music, Christian music, obviously going to church a lot, um, when I was really young. And I remember, uh, seeing uh, a Michael Jackson video uh, when I was at my cousin's house. And that was kind of like my first obsession um, when I was about 10 or maybe eight. Um, but it wasn't, you know, quote, kind of like rock stuff. Uh, so I, I kind of like really sunk my teeth into that and everything that he was influenced by, you know, and the Jacksons, of course, like all of the Motown years, uh, James Brown, a lot of soul and things like that. And then, you know, you get into your teens and then at the time there was like a huge kind of new metal like uh, movement that was coming from the States. And then, of course, like this huge wave of gangster rap as well that was coming from America, which a lot of people in, in the UK really absolutely loved and you know i i i sort of enjoyed some of it but like 
it wasn't until I was about 15, maybe turning 16, and uh, this band called The Darkness kind of like blew up. And the sound and the look, everything about it, I was just like, wow, okay, like this is this is amazing. And that was the first time I kind of thought, wow, this is like completely up my street. I don't know why, but it just really resonated with me. And then from that, um, I, I soon discovered like all of their influences, you know? And of course, like when it comes to Queen, it's like, I knew, I knew like the big hits, you know, like I, of course I'd heard things like another one bites the dust and, bohemian rhapsody and all, all of these kind of like the monster monster songs but I, I took it upon myself to sort of actually go you know i'm gonna i'm gonna go to my record store um in bristol and i'm gonna buy the first two queen albums and go from there i don't know why but i just thought i, I wanted to do it and it completely blew me away uh, the first two albums and then the, at that moment, I was like, this is mine. This is my world. This is like my band. Um, and it just became the soundtrack of like my mid-teens. While a lot of other stuff was happening um, musically, that seemed to be the one that I gravitated towards. And then I think because... I wasn't exposed to a whole lot of stuff from my parents, which I know so many people have, have been, you know, like it's so common to, to hear someone say, Oh, you know, like I, I remember my dad and mum or, or whoever um, driving and we would always listen to queen and we would do this and the Beatles and my mom gave me the Beatles. And I tell people all the time, it is, the greatest gift she ever gave me is her love of music, specifically the Beatles. Yeah. I mean, and I think what happened was because I didn't have any of that, everything that I discovered, which was in the sixties and the seventies kind of eras, like all of those huge bands, it was like I was discovering them for the first time. And that, Begun, began my, my obsession with looking back and, and sort of really just becoming obsessed, obsessed with everything that was 50s, 60s, and 70s. I just sort of like just dove into. And to be honest, I, I still am now. I mean, I'm getting a bit more contemporary these days um, because if I'm honest, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a little bit older now. And I've kind of gone through so many discographies and sort of delved deep into all of these legendary acts that I'm, I'm now in the last kind of couple of years or so looking more contemporary and uh, even into like a lot more different genres as well, which I'm also equally enjoying, you know, thoroughly. It comes up on the show all the time, especially when I talk to British artists. Like I talked to Sam Carter from Architects recently. I talked to the Royal Blood guys. And we always talk about the ping pong ball of inspiration that goes across the pond. That, you know, the early R&B that then went to England and came back with the British invasion and then 
gets back and forth and you're another artist that talks about that inspiration of getting that imported music and then, you know, interpreting it in your own way and sending it back out again. It's quite a ping pong ball match. It is. It's quite funny. I, I mean, I, I've, I've been recently playing um, some shows with Mike Garson, uh, who was David Bowie's piano player for the, the best part of 40 plus years which have been really, really great. And I've had the opportunity to, to, you know, have some amazing guests, some people that I know, some people that Mike knows, we sort of bring together and bring them both together for these shows that we've been doing in LA. And um, yeah, I, I overheard a conversation uh, with, with Mike and uh, a bass player that also used to play for, for Bowie and played on Let's Dance, etc. cetera. Uh, amazing, amazing player. and. Um, you know, they were saying that it's quite funny that England, for the best, for the most part, especially during the the uh, the early to mid '60s, you know, were so heavily influenced by um, the black music of America, but the way that England kind of interpreted it just always seemed to be. Um, superior to when america later on like caught on to like what was happening like after the british invasion i don't know if that's like particularly true or not but um i did think it was quite funny for these americans sort of like pointing it out and admitting it you know (laughs) well i mean you guys did have a run right zeppelin stone sabbath beatles i could go on you know, not to, it's, not it's, to float your British egos. See, my theory is this, right? I think England, well, the United Kingdom produces the greatest bands in the world. And America has produced and still does the greatest solo artists of all time. And if you really think about that, it's very true. You know, America has... Elvis Presley, Michael Jackson, just to name, I mean, those two names alone in terms of like their influence and sheer sort of like, uh, well, yeah, their influence that they've had on the entire world is just like absolutely staggering. But not to say that America hasn't produced some incredible bands as well, but I think the, 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 the bands that have come out of the United Kingdom have just been on a, a different caliber in terms of how, you know, they've influenced the world. I mean, even, yeah, Bob Dylan, like American, you know what I mean? It's like Jimi Hendrix, solo guy. Um, gosh, it just like the list kind of goes on and on. It's, it's actually a fun game. Yeah, it is. Um, it, it, you know, you kind of take Aerosmith off the table and then you go, okay, hold on. Let's, you know, <laughs> it is. Yeah, it's hard. It's yeah. hard, you know, and, and even like I remember speaking to Stephen uh, Tyler about this, and you know, and when they were starting out, they just wanted to be the Stones. So it's like you know, yeah. Again, talk about this ping pong effect. You know? Yeah. When did you realize you could write songs and sing? Was it early going to church with your parents? When when was it something you realized like I might be able to do this? I think so singing singing was quite late to be honest. Um I never really 
got into uh, the church music a, a great deal. There was probably a, a few times where I kind of sang and everything, but, you know, it doesn't really require a lot of skill nor talent to kind of just join in, if that makes any sense. You like kind of I didn't, stay in the back uh, and just kind of move your mouth and... Yeah, I wasn't, you know, I was, I would normally sing because my mum would sort of like be looking at me very angrily, sort of singing, <laughs> like, you know, can't sing. But I, I remember when I was a lot younger, um, I was cast in a school production of a musical by Andrew Lloyd Webber called Joseph in his Technicolor Dreamcoat. And in the musical and in the narrative, the pharaoh, uh, is sort of like a, uh, a parody of Elvis Presley. You know, it's like super lighthearted and fun. And they cast me to, to play the Pharaoh. And I remember doing the performance and um, didn't really think I, think I could sort of like sing, sing. But I was in tune, well, as far as I could remember. <laughs> and um, I got like a, a standing ovation, which was incredible and i and i remember thinking like then like hmm, you know i like this you know i think i could i think i could do it and then it wasn't until it wasn't until i i joined another school uh with a friend and and my friend had a band and this friend of mine was actually at the uh primary school and was also in this school musical. So he knew that I could sort of sing to a certain extent and perform and asked if I sort of like wanted to join and jam and everything. And that, that sort of like opened the doors to me actually sitting down and um, just going through the arduous process of learning how to sing, you know, learning how to sing, songs like Back in Black, learning how to sing Highway to Hell, learning how to sing Zeppelin songs and The Kinks and Sex Pistols. And yeah, I've, I've never had a vocal lesson in my life. I've just sort of been someone who's been self-taught through just pure experience and um, pushing myself. And then when it came to like writing songs, it was in that, sort of same era like my school band we tried to write a lot of original material and we did to be fair um and it's quite funny like looking back now i was i was considered the lyricist you know not not the songwriter but i was i was effectively top lining and creating melodies and writing lyrics uh to like riffs that the band would be coming up with so I was writing songs then, but it wasn't until a year or so after that where I was walking back um, from a club and I was rather drunk and um, <laughs> I'd recently gone through a breakup and uh, I, I wrote this song in my head called Where Did She Go? And I remember thinking like, wow, like this is this chorus and this melody like feels really, really, really good. And I, I sang it to myself the entire walk home, which was like 20 minutes. And then I got home <laughs> and then I fell asleep and I woke up with it in my head the next day. I wrote the lyrics down and then I went to, um, 
to one of the members of the band, my school band, and he he helped me to to put the chords to it. And we started playing it. And then it was actually the song that stuck with me and has stuck with me for so long, since I was 16. And and it made its way into the uh, the Struts discography on our first record. So that song sort of is always like a, a little bit of a, a reminder of how far I've come. Proving my point once again, I have been saying it for decades, rock and roll wouldn't exist if women weren't bitches because you guys would have nothing to write about. <laughs> I mean, to be fair on her, it was, it was, it was actually more to do with me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it takes a strong man to admit that Luke. I appreciate that. Oh no, no. I, I, you know, I'm happily, I'll happily admit when, when I'm wrong, you know, I'm fascinated by the process of songwriting. And so I ask every songwriter that comes on the show, this question, this is a craft question, not a favorite song question, but can you give me an example of a song, any genre, any artist that is inconsequential that you believe is perfectly written a song you covet and say, that's kind of the level of perfection you strive to achieve when you write a song, but then you got to break it down and tell me why. Honestly, it's changed dramatically um, over the last couple of years in terms of like things that I hold uh, to like high value, so to speak. I mean, it's almost like you have to get somewhere in between Dylan and the Beatles. You know, I, I remember John Lennon and Bob Dylan having like this, this argument. And I, and I've read about it where, you know, John Lennon turns around and says, you know, I love what you're saying, but like your music's kind of like terrible. (laughs) And Bob Dylan's like, well, I love your music, but you're not saying shit, you know? So you have to have like this middle ground of great sort of like melodies, but what really kind of, drives a song forward in my opinion is is a great lyric and is something that um people can sort of be transported like in their imagination um and then of course like having that melody to sort of like balance it out is is the perfect combo in my opinion but in terms of like a specific track that kind of does that it's hmm I'd have to I'd have to think on that a little bit more. I mean I mean let's go back to Queen, for instance. I, I think some of their greatest songs have actually had an almost perfect marriage between lyric and melody. I think like if you listen to Don't Stop Me Now, you know, which I know when it first came out in the United States wasn't really that big of a hit but it's become since you know quite a a force unto itself you know as a song and i and i think that is a great example of like a brilliant lyric which has loads of like visual elements to it and it has humor it suits the melody like so well and it has like you know like that's why they call me mr fahrenheit i mean that's it's just pure genius and then when you think about it musically and the chords that are going on and the melody, 
it really is like quite staggering. And I, I think, I think in terms of songwriting, people should, you know, if anyone's sort of out there is sort of looking to create music and, and actually sort of have a bar that they want to set. I, I'd say Queen's sort of like biggest hits are, are definitely a great start, you know, because like I said, they, they have that perfect marriage of brilliant lyric and brilliant melody and fantastic arrangements, great chord progressions, you know. To go against the argument you made earlier about British bands and American solo artists, that's what makes the songwriting process of Elton John and Bernie Taupin so unbelievable is that marriage of lyric and melody and they don't even do it in the same room. doesn't make any sense. comes up on the show all yeah. the time. Yeah, and that's, you know, Elton is a, that songwriting partnership is, is a fantastic, like, example of what I'm saying. Um, where you have an extremely gifted uh, musician who has a fantastic instinct for melody and also interpreting these like amazing poetic lyrics, you know, Um, again, like another amazing example of like what it is to sort of write a great song. Well, before I let you go, it is the holiday season so um, what are uh, family traditions? What do you look forward to the most this time of year? What, what says the holidays to you? Ooh, um, Is it a specific dish, music, a location? Yeah, well, I, I've moved around quite a lot in my life. Um, so it's kind of like in terms of location, that, is kind of hard to pin down, but it's quite weird being in LA. It doesn't feel quite Christmassy yet. Um, I, I I think when I when I touch down in Heathrow and I make my way to Paddington Station, I think it will be there. They normally have like people singing carols and everything, and it it sort of really makes me feel like ah, oh, and everyone's wrapped up in warm clothes and. You can hear like the hustle and bustle of London. It definitely feels like Christmas at Paddington Station. In fact, actually, that's a good subject for a Christmas song. I'll write that down. <laughs> if this becomes a Struts Christmas song, I I just want to be a little footnote, like like in in the liner notes, just a little parentheses, like a little Mistress Carrie reference. Yeah, yeah. Okay, deal. deal. <laughs> And since uh, New Year's Eve um, in Vegas is kind of the only tour date that you've got left this year, um, what are the plans for 2023 with the Struts? Uh, We're going to be releasing a new record. Uh, Going to be touring a lot during the summer, as I'm aware. I think we're going to be using the first quarter of the year to kind of really nail this record and, and, and do it properly and, and give it the justice that the songs deserve. Um, and yeah, it'll just kind of just be business as usual. There's a couple of other interesting things in the pipeline, which are still being worked on, which I can't talk about too much, but you know, uh, are, are equally as exciting, but a lot of great big things to come for, for myself and the struts. 
Well, it was so great to talk to you. I appreciate the generosity of your time, especially at this time of year while everybody's scrambling to get things done before the end of the year. So it was great to reconnect again, especially after like five or six years based on the goals you guys set for yourselves on that first U.S. tour when I met you and to see what you guys are doing now. I'm just, I've always said that you guys were a band that that I would love to have play a keg party in my yard because you are that rock and roll party band that I just love. So thank you for hanging out with me today. No, thank you. I really appreciate it. Really appreciate it. And um, yeah, let's not leave it so long next time. Absolutely. I will take you up on that for sure. When the record comes out, we'll talk again. Sweet, sweet. All right. All right. Well, have a lovely, lovely day. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Switch in a bit. Bye. Bye. There he is. That's Luke Spiller from the Struts. If you're headed to Vegas for New Year's, make sure you head to the Fremont Street Experience and see the Struts with Bush and so many other artists to ring in the new year. Check this episode's show notes to find Luke online, to find the Struts online, and to find all of the Mistress Carrie links as well. You'll also find the link to this episode's corresponding playlist. I make a playlist for every full-length episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast, and it's filled with my guest music and also all of the artists and songs that we referenced in the interview. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to like, share, and follow the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday, plus every weekday you get the sit rep. The Situation Report is filled with all of your rock news, music headlines, and entertainment updates, and it only takes five minutes. And you never know when we're going to release a bonus episode. And we're not taking a break. We'll have a new episode coming next week. You can also join me live every Tuesday night at 8.30 Eastern on my official Facebook page for my video show, Cocktails in the War Room. And as always, you can listen to the Mistress Carrie radio show. Get the details on all that and more at MistressCarrie.com. Thank you so much for making 2022 our best year yet. The Mistress Carrie podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. If you're looking to get a new car, you could really cut expenses by bundling your car and renter's insurance with Progressive. Sure, you love your old car, but you know it's not normal to give instructions on how to open the window. It should be self-explanatory, but it's not. And notice how when you're in other people's cars, you can feel cushion in the seats? That's pretty nice, right? No, it's just normal. So bundle your renters and car insurance with Progressive and put the savings toward a new car. It's time. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. At The Home Depot, we're dedicated to helping you build the skills that get your home projects done right. That's why we offer free and interactive online DIY workshops. During the live streams, our knowledgeable associates help you tackle your DIY projects no matter your age or skill level. You can learn how to install new single pole switches as well as standard duplex and GFCI outlets. Register for free at homedepot.com workshops. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.